Right, hi everybody, welcome to uh, our Beyond Autism podcast series. We are running these, uh, particularly in this little uh, section or series around um, multidisciplinary working, the ethics behind that, and how it can be an effective part of a team. We're very lucky today to have uh, a friend and colleague of mine called Ryan O, from all the way from the US of A. So Ryan, say hi. How you doing? <laughs> Thank you very much for having me on, I'm really excited. Uh, it's been a while since I chatted with you all, so yeah. super pumped to, di- to dive in a bit. Yeah, that's right. So th- thanks for making your time. I appreciate you are at 6 a.m. at your end, so that's amazing. Um, that's quite all right. I should probably say that uh, my name's Andy Swarfiger. Uh, I hadn't said that before, so there it is. Um, so you guys may have heard of Rhino. Rhino uh, runs uh, the Daily BA. He's into loads of other really cool projects. I think you've probably got the best job in behavior analysis. You're traveling the world and hooking up with various people. <laughs> yeah, I've been super lucky. Um, uh, the condensed version is it's been about 10 years in the field, seven years, eight years in uh, clinical practice in various different capacities, worked into like an OBM type of role, organizational behavior management, um, and then saw a need for kind of creating more um, video-based uh products like stories videos of what behavior analysis can achieve so i've been kind of chasing that dream um and it's turned into a business step for me that is that's so cool to have that dream and to be able to take it on so just in terms of um what we're going to talk about today obviously one of the important reasons of wanting to talk to you ryan was the fact that you had this kind of contact around the world and we'll bring that in later but i really wanted to focus on kind of the ethics of this stuff um and reference particularly a guy called Matthew Broadhead, um, and an article came to my attention recently um, in yeah. the um, Behavior Analysis Practice Journal. And this one's from 2015, and it's around maintaining professional relationships in an interdisciplinary setting. Um, and we'll, we'll cover, we'll walk through that later, but also the guy's got the, a book from 2018 with, uh, with other colleagues around practical ethics for effective treatment of autism spectrum disorder. And I think what he, what he brings to the table across these two things is a particularly big emphasis on interdiscipl- interdisciplinary collaboration. Um, yeah. I wondered if you kind of had, you know, your experiences of that worldwide. Is, is this something that comes up for you when you're interacting with people? Yeah, so it's, um, I've got a, an interesting story I can share on like collaboration. Because um, at, I guess when I got into behavior analysis specifically, I was taught like there's this fantastic way to look at the world and it can help people achieve these amazing outcomes. Mm. Um, and that's 100% true when you start to dive in and understand how to look at things. Um, but what was taught to me was like, this is the way, it's it's our way is the best. Mm. And that was the part that kind of started to creep in when it came to interdisciplinary work. Um, and so like the first time that I really got to work with a teacher and a speech and language uh, pathology um, department in a charter school in uh, the United States as a graduate student, mm. um, I considered it like a miserable fail just because I was not doing well at all of listening um, to, to the colleagues across the table in the classroom with me. Um, and it was one of those things I think that yet, I don't know, for me, like I had to go through um, the process of, of, um, getting in that context, working with others and realizing that I was, I was not the, um, only way of thinking, I guess it was at the table. Um, but it was, it was a pretty rough, like six months learning to work in that environment first. And on reflection, that was just like me working with others. Right. And it was, it was kind of my, (laughs) it was my, my biases and my perspective. Right. Um, it was at no fault of everyone. And, um, so over, over years after that, res- that, that happened over years, um, it's just been kind of like this realization more and more that, Hey, behavior analysis is great, but it needs to go with anything else. Like, so I, I usually talk about it as like behavior analysis plus whatever. So if you're in an interdisciplinary setting, helping people with autism, um, that's oftentimes, you know, people like occupational therapists, speech and language pathologists, um, the families, the parents, the stakeholders and such. Um, and it's like everybody brings something. So um, literally like you fast forward six, 12 months after my first interaction it was really rough with like the speech department that I was working with. I was in another setting. Um, and the speech language pathologists and, uh, OT that were on site and, and visited for different cases. Um, I learned that, you know, communicating what it is that I was struggling with 
they'd help me aid in those sort of um, solutions. Sure. Um, and it was just a little tweak on my part. Um, and all of a sudden, bam, there's a lot of, uh, you know, resources and ideas and, and things at my disposal that I never had. Uh, one specifically was always how to, um, how certain sounds develop. Um, I had absolutely no clue about that, you know, and there's some, some tools we have in our toolbox as behavior analysts um, to help us uh, teach language, but there were some, clearly some things that came out of the SLP world that were extremely beneficial in helping out. So um, it's always been there for me, from my understanding on the clinical side of behavior analysis, what we do in day-to-day -day, uh, therapy. Um, today, I always tell people like nothing that I do video wise would make sense if it wasn't for someone else doing something before me, <laughs> whether that's in behavior <laughs> analysis or outside of it. Like I can't do my job without somebody else first doing something um, really fantastic, such as writing the article or, or putting the time into thinking about the points and stuff. Cause I'm just essentially translating that into a video based medium. Um, there's nothing, uh, particularly new about the content. So it's always interdisciplinary at the end of the day. Um, and that was a, a kind of hard lesson for me to learn at first getting in the field. Well, and, and you had that double-edged sword there of having, um, being new in the field and then also coming across something that maybe there was maybe actively discouraged at a certain level within learning around behaviorism, which is often super tricky, which is why the Broadhead article really, um, and, and his book as well, that really kind of sung for me, because it's, you know, talking about the principles and values that underpin a BACB professional and educational competency, um, the, the code for behavior analysis and factors that affect ethical decision-making, how to collaborate with professionals within and outside of the discipline, how to be a good collaborator and then yeah. you know you know you've other got other guys like ABA Inside Track and you know they've got a podcast on how to how be able to talk to non-behavior analysts and I think <clears throat> if we go back right back to the roots of this and you start thinking about like the, the Cooper text the Cooper book and I think it's like one of the first lines talking about how context is key and so, of course, as a behavior analyst, you're interacting with the world around you and you have these competing contingencies. And of course, you have to understand and be able to react to those. So I think going back to the article, so the 2015 article out of the behavior analysis in practice, he sets it up by starting to talk about his, he, he kind of sets this up to bat out of the park, I think, to talk about, you know, um, the, the erosion of professional relationships. And he starts talking about uh, the purpose of the paper is to actually create a decision-making model. So I suppose what he's really saying there is that he's talking about service user outcomes, right? The guys that benefit from multidisciplinary teams. He sets out straight away talking about that. That seems to be your interactions with the world, actually. Yeah, that it's it should always be outcomes focused first. Like that's the point of this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um... Broadhead, I've got to give it to him and a few others like included on that book that have been writing in this area. Um, it's, it's, I feel like the topics here are in this article are things that are, um, have been talked about on and off for uh, in a lot of different places. First of all, they're kind of summarizing, bringing that together. Um, what's great and seems to be more and more useful for practitioners are the things that they're developing, um, like their decision trees on like here's how to go first second third fourth yeah um the the context how do you i don't know how you want me to tie the context part in so it's I'm, just to say like obviously behavior analysis doesn't exist in a vacuum <laughs> yeah like, um as far as i understand it its whole purpose is to facilitate things to happen yeah yeah um yeah, the context side's interesting. So I guess what I have to say about that is um, there is this whole branch of behaviorism that shaped up called contextual behavioral science that's um, doing some fantastic things in its own right. Specifically, uh, some branches came out of it. One uh, that's usually known pretty well is this form of talk therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and we're seeing that uh, flood in through different curriculums and, and, and tools now for um people diagnosed on the on the spectrum and such too but the it's kind of always been there and um i feel like it's getting packaged in a way that's that's not for the staunch hardcore 
academic minded or research focused behavior analyst. So um, that's where I learned about uh, contextual behavior science is like on the back of here in my bookshelf, you grab um, some of the nerdiest textbooks that we have in our field, like the densest <laughs> textbooks. And you can learn all about like the, the specifics of the difference between descriptive contextualism, functional contextualism. And most people, I feel like it's, it's just hard to uh, surmass like the, the experience to understand those. Um, context really is like you're saying at, at the at the end of the day, um, nothing's occurring in a vacuum. Everything else around you potentially matters, um, whether mm-hmm. that's the service team, the history um, of the person that you're working with. Um, and it's nice to see this like, uh, I guess, holistic perspective coming back in um, to our mainstream articles, right? Of you need to be thinking about all this sort of stuff. Um, and it's hard to, I guess, discern sometimes like, what to pay attention to and what not to. Um, and I think that's why we're seeing the development of things like these uh, kind of flow charts or checklists, right, to go through. Um, yeah. Because, you know, when you're imagining, when you're working with a caseload of 25, 30, 35, and, and you're trying to go through with all these teams, I think that's where these tools are really useful. They help you just kind of, um, you know, quickly start to go through What's relevant yeah, here? And, and I, I know we're only talking about one article, but the, the reason why I kind of picked it out, because, I mean, Broadhead has taken, as far as I can make out, like a fairly heavy, uh, comprehensive look at this. Like, he's got 22 references for this one article, which I think is a testament to the quality of it. And there's a really cool quote by um, Kelly and Tim Carney from 2013, where it talks about collaborations between BCBAs and related service, service providers could improve education outcomes and increase treatment fidelity. Which I guess is uh, maybe the captain obvious thing to say if you accept that you need to be more than one head and more than one discipline in one space. But again, I'd like to kind of look back at this idea of your experiences of the people that you've managed to contact in your work around, is, is this a worldwide view? Do you find or do you experience or come across this uh, sense of collaboration generally? You know, if I if I had to guess and try to package it together, where I think it's like a pretty accurate representation of the different places I've been to, um, is it seems to be more and more of a uh, a way in which people approach um, treatment teams and like their perspective on it as you start to progress in your career. Mm-hmm. So the, I think a lot of people initially come out of graduate school in behavior analysis and you're like, hey, like this is your bread and butter. You just got great at it. We, our training programs are designed to teach you to speak only behaviorally, really, yeah. at the end of the day, like specifically in only those terms. And so it's almost like you learn this second language and you go out in the world and you have to then realize that, no, not everybody speaks that language. You actually need to, <laughs> to pause everything that you learned the last couple of years. And you now need to figure out how to translate and speak in this way in which anybody will understand you. It's like behavior ease. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, behavioral ease, behavior ease. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's, it's insane. So, yeah, I, I feel like it's uh, uh, what I could definitely say from traveling to different places. I think people slowly over, you know. Um, it might be six, it might be six days, six months, six years, um, depending on their trajectory. Like they start to learn, oh, um, I need to kind of adapt and shift my words and I need to take another perspective. So I see like that maturity of things that are talked about on working in interdisciplinary, uh, settings and realizing that everybody has something to offer, I think shapes up over time. So, um, I just wrapped up working on a project in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, at a place called Boys Town here in the U- United States. It's a very different residential setting, even for mm. um, uh, most of the residential settings that we know for children with autism, intellectual disabilities and such. Um, it's in like a legal all, all its own in the quality of care. Um, people come in and they live with a family for the residential care. Okay. It's not the residential care model where um, people are coming in uh, and, you know, staff have a bunch of keys on their belt and it's a rotating shift for 24 hours. Like it's a true family model that came out of behavior analysis. Um, and there is a pure interdisciplinary, um, approach to understanding, uh, and helping these students as best they can when it comes to, uh, if you, if you name it, like there's a social service that's on that facility to help them out and everybody's working together and it is literally uh, person centered, you know, client focused first. That's incredible. It doesn't matter who, doesn't matter what's going on um but that's something that that uh uh took that you know took time mm. and took years uh, of development i think it's been around for 
um, approximately 100, 102 years or something like that, um, this facility. And um, it seems like that's, a, like, like that's an organizational or like company culture that's developed right, right over time. Um, and so, yeah, I guess to, to kind of like summarize that, it's you can see these things in different capacities. That's the most recent one I've been to. Um, but it seems like if that's a focus of the organization, that's a focus of the culture that's there, um, that's how that gets ingrained into those organizational cultures. So I've seen it internationally in other places mm. too. Um, I've seen fantastic collaboration when it comes to uh, places in the UAE, Brazil, um, uh, places in Norway. Um, I know you all are working on uh, quite extensively in the UK. Mm. I'm folks in Ireland trying to, you know, as much as we can, how do we work with others? Mm. Um, and it seems like everyone's kind of hitting the same milestones, but at different parts of the trajectory, if that makes sense. Right. And it seems to be your clinical experience, right? Um, is what starts to impact that. Well, and, and you just start to wonder whether there's this, this kind of uh, variation in pace that's occurring worldwide and that at some point it's going to hit a critical line in the metaphorical sand, as it were, and then going to be able to possibly move together as a field. Because, I mean, if we kind of get back to some of the nuts and bolts of, of how... Uh, I think quite skillfully Broadhead kind of goes through this like he, he starts to reference the BACB guidelines and talks about you know it's a, it's a bit about the uh, promotion of behaviour analysis it's a bit about responsible conduct and so on and so it kind of feels like you know you read your, your seminal text on ethics and your seminal text on how to practice and you get all your technical terminology and then you kind of arrive in the world and then I, I don't know if you experienced this but I certainly did like when I first started practicing, and in the UK, it's a whole different kettle of fish. Like when I started practicing in around 2000, I, I think the BCBA had just coming in, yeah. and certainly nobody in the UK was doing it. Um, and you get all these little pockets of weirdness. And I, I remember walking around the place thinking, it's, about, it's ABA or nothing. And, and it, it just it puts you in a really stupid place if you look back at that <laughs> yeah. time it's kind of cringy it's like oh, did I really say that stuff so do you think in any way that this is a thought that occurred to me and I'm, I'm more than happy for you to say now what were you thinking but it kind of feels like with the the way that the uh, requirements of behaviour analysts are set out in far as in so much as the BACB goes, and then talking about multidisciplinary working, and in particular in the Broadhead article, we're talking about whether or not you bother to cause professional discourse, um, disagreement rather. Is there a contradiction in terms then between the, I guess, the fundamentals of behaviour analysis and then interacting with the rest of the world? Like it almost like it's an ironic thing. It's, a, it's just the, the irony around, re, sorry, reform that for me one more time. Just My the, the ir- No, no, it's fine. The irony around the, almost like the stringency of what you have to learn to become a BCBA <laughs> and the rhetoric and the, and the, and the task list that you're taught during your postgrad, if that's, if that's the route. Um, and then you arrive in the world where that just doesn't work. It just doesn't yeah. fly. So, a hundred percent. Thank you for sure you saying that. Yeah, uh, immense amount of irony in there. The um, and this gets a little into speculation, but I think what it is is um, it reminds me of how uh, so like a lot of times in technology based things like this video world that I'm in, um, I'm constantly getting updates not from a university but from Facebook groups and technology sites and things like that because the world's so fast paced and moving so quickly. Yeah. And I almost feel like in a sense behavior analysis with this technology age kind of rushing in. Um, experience the same thing. There's a lot of stuff, right? Like um, what the, the amount of information that's now available and coming out is increasing exponentially when you look at the podcast, the videos, all the articles still going out there. Um, but the demand for services, demand for practitioners um, worldwide, but especially in the States is where I can, I can speak to you a little bit more, um, is in the U.S. we're growing faster than any other professional certificates grown mm. ever, um, which is insane because what that is is um, – I mean, it's great for our field, but it's also like a double-edged sword in that it's creating all these pressures of training high-quality mm. people. And it almost seems like what happened is behavior analysis, um, circa that, you know, 2000, I don't know, four to 2008, 
time period was really and 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 back was really focusing on how do we train the best scientist practitioners these people are going to be um, almost in a sense like textbook java implementing designing and understanding everything out there like to the you know the very core of like being a researcher um, and implementing things like that but what happened after that as the demand grew is there's just a real need for helping people today right now Mm. and like those Mm. practitioners um, um, are in essentially a a far different environment like I believe a ton of the work done in the early days was um, of our field was done with a team of behavior analysts around the table it Mm. wasn't a team of as much interdisciplinary folks Um, so yeah I feel like our what I'm trying to get out here is like times have changed. It seems like our um, training systems are trying to keep up, but they're not necessarily have caught up with the fact that that vernacular is very useful and that language that we learn is very useful for us um, breaking down and understanding things and communicating with each other. But when it comes to anything beyond that in, in the day-to-day of what you're going to be doing is not doing that sort of stuff. You're going to be talking... Um, and translating oh, translating the covenant, as Richard Fox says in his 1999, uh, 1996 article, you're translating the covenant constantly. You have to um, use totally different words. Um, I mean, there was a recent research article uh, by Critchfield and some colleagues, I believe, that was looking at uh, a measurable, objective, aversive reaction that people are getting as a result of using our technical terms. <laughs> like, they, they are, if anything, they are off-putting when they are said uh. out loud. Um, and I'm sure there's ways to combat that and train people to, um, slowly to understand them, you know, and pitch them in different ways, but just going out there and spewing these, this information, um, um, isn't working. So yeah, if the, I'm, it seems like that really great behavioral training programs are teaching the, the technical side and kind of the translated side over time. Um, that's something that's. That's difficult because the uh, there are two skill sets right at the end of the day. Mm. Um, well, I, I kind of so yeah. So you got almost like a supply and demand scenario, right? So given what you were saying around the, the acceleration of the certificates over uh, over time, and also the the want for those professionals to be involved, I wonder if that's having an impact on there being more interactions. I mean, I suppose there is like more people, more programs, more pro, more people to work with. You kind of have this. Um, I wonder if this is all that can be done, though. I mean, you you can't have you can't become experienced as a behavior analyst in a multidisciplinary team if you aren't yet a behavior analyst. So I suppose what, in a way, like as a, almost as a model, you're going to have to, right guys, learn all this stuff, pass <laughs> the exam, know how to use it, but that's all you know. And there's a really um, right. a really great. Uh, Professor, I think she is certainly a doctorate level who who lectures on the Bangor University in Wales. Maggie Hoga, I think she runs a program there. Okay, and she recognises that in in the training in the in the verified course sequence content, she recognises that it doesn't give you any practical application. So she actively takes um, postgrad students from her program and places them in programs that she has running in the background, so she can be in there and really kind of help them work and practice. Which I mean, having inherited some of her students into programs that I've been involved in you, yeah. it makes such a big difference it's incredible yeah, yeah it, there's a couple things that come to mind first of all um, to go off and kind of dovetail what you were saying the I remember going through grad school and talking with a, a physical therapist there was just a friend in undergrad we were catching up one time on like a, a winter or summer break or something like that and she was describing how their practicum sites were very strict in that they had to go to four different settings and they were different types of setting, whether it was inpatient, outpatient, um, some sort of like mental health specific place. Um, and I can't remember the last one. Um, but I mean, people were literally uprooting their life and moving to go to the, these practicum sites. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was one year of their life was moving to a different city every three months to be able to do these sort of things. I get that that's not for everybody. That's an extremely, um, uh, time resource intensive sort of thing to be doing and like her for example she was taking um you just take extra student loans out to be to yeah, defer yeah. that you know and, and try to make these sort of things happen but what was fascinating out of that um and is is 
getting a taste of different environments, different interdisciplinary settings, and getting coaching during that time on how to work in those sort of settings. And that's something we don't have in behavior analysis. And that, to my understanding, was a nationwide expectation, not just a program specific that she was going through, but like nationwide expectation. Um, and that's where um, I was pretty lucky in or Orlando, Florida, when I was going to school to have a, an advisor that could help me get different experiences in different settings. Um, and, it, and, and it helped kind of expedite that. But that's something I think in retrospect, we could look at mm. and kind of redesign a little bit better is what sort of training systems do we have in place? For example, who might be setting up things that are uniquely really developing these skill sets like you described with Bingo, right. um, and kind of re- rethink these things. Um, I know it. I know it takes work and effort, but it's kind of like, hey, if we could step back and and look at this, could we redesign it a little bit better? Um, right, and it's all there's all sorts of politics in the background as to who who delivers the VCS, the verified core sequences, what's on them, what's on the task list. But I, I mean, I've started to notice little bits coming into the various task list iterations around. You know, being able to talk to someone who's not a behaviour analyst is in there somewhere, I think. You know, understanding when services aren't required anymore has always been there, but there seems to be a larger emphasis these days. And the model you described actually makes me think of other kind of human interaction services. So if you're a a nurse or a doctor, you do various rotations to find out what your specialist is going to be, but nobody expects you to be able to make big decisions. Yeah. or and lead until you until you're there. And you're also uh, I'm getting a little bit more abreast of the medical training process just secondhand through some some uh, friends who are going through it. And you're also testing multiple times that start to dictate what you can and can't work in, which is is mm. pretty scary when you think about like I could bomb a test and not be working in a disciplinary area that I've wanted to work in my entire life. Like that pressure yeah. is uh, unreal, but it's a realistic pressure and it's based on your competency and your skill sets. Um, and that's something that I don't know if that's the best thing for our field, but um, it's an interesting thing that's going on in the medical world, you know, where it's like, hey, do you have the skill sets to work in this area? Um, and this was the other point that kind of had me thinking about when I mentioned there was a couple of things is there's a little bit more talk, I think, now going on uh, in the States specifically about should there, be, should there be some sort of like subspecialties or subspecialization that kind of starts to happen over time um, hmm. uh, to, to really drive, you know the the context specific things depending on the settings or the populations that you're working with um Mm. i don't think that would be a bad thing at the end of the day uh it could be seen as restrictive if behavior analysts had to get certain amount of training over time in certain areas but um yeah but then but if it's if it's helping client outcomes why not right um i would gladly go back to school if i had to even if i didn't want to if it meant that uh us as a field me myself right as a practitioner where it was able to um, deliver more effective treatment at the end of the day. Because I think all of us, um, and again, I'm speaking a little bit more in the States here, but a lot of us are worried, I think, constantly about what are the, um, are we are we as a culture of behavior analysts providing the best possible treatment outcomes? Um, and is that quality of training, quality of service um, continually getting better well, over time? And a bigger question there is, like, is it even possible to deliver the best type of outcome if you're not working across disciplines, because you know I've had experience again in the states, but you know we'll stop ragging on the states too. But like, we, I went on a tour of a few different places in New York, New Jersey, and so on. Yeah. Um, and our last one that we were aiming that we were going to land in was in in Florida. And when we were sort of explaining to colleagues as we were meeting them, oh, we're going to end up at this particular place down in, in, in Orlando, they were like, oh, that's not ABA. And I was like, okay, I don't really know what you mean. Okay, fine, thanks for the heads up. But we went down there and what they meant was, it's, it's interdisciplinary. <laughs> and that kind of spun, my, spun me out a little bit. But going back to your other point, now about, about uh, and this comes us, takes us back to the article. There's a real theme or thread through this about really trying to answer the what harm question. And when he starts talking about whether or not you should risk the professional relationships breaking down by being insistent on behavioral-based interventions, um, Mm -hmm. he he brings it back to, is it worth the conversation if there's not too much impact going on here, even if you don't understand this behavior analysis? And then coming up to the the what's the harm question. Yeah, um, like I said, this this flowchart that they developed um, in the article is 
uh, great. It's a great first tool. Um, mm. I mean, you could literally walk through it. I try to read things like this and critique, like, is this something that I could think of, you know, uh, uh, differently, um, and in a better sort of way. Um, I think he nailed it. So it's really, it's really just coming down to if there's a non-behavioral treatment, is it going to impact safety or the efficacy of the treatment? And if it's not, it's probably best we just shut our mouth, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's at the end of the day. Um, but you can hear like various, it may be more old school behavior. So you kind of collectively hear their tails, tails, toes are curling at this point. It's like, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. And I always kind of feel like when you look at this flowchart, obviously the guys will be on the website for you guys to see when you when you hook up to the podcast. But um, it, it's just a very basic decision tree, and, and actually he kind of goes, Do you know what? If it's going to be fun for someone, or it's not going to impact on the entire holistic model or the outcome, then don't get in a fight about it. Yeah, we have, um, and this, there's another way I try to frame this for people sometimes when I'm talking about it, which is, if you think about the number of people that could benefit from sort of behavioral uh, services, whether that's autism, intellectual disability, or anything else outside of that our field's done, when it comes to training surgeons better, when it comes to uh, training dancers, when it comes to uh, the um, hero rats work, the mammoth care work, like there's a lot of stuff that our field's done out there. Um, there is not enough people at any point in any day to, to help the amount of people that could benefit from our services. So if we're going to, we kind of also have this thing that we have to step back and I think to weigh in here of like, should we be arguing about specifics there um, that may, that I would think don't matter at the end of the day, whether or not um, someone's really understanding why we want to do behavioral only mm-hmm. and, and causing potentially disruption and things um, when we have so much other need out there to focus on. Um, like if you're on the number in the States, we're expected to hit somewhere around the, they're, they're projecting um, somewhere around like 150,000 BCBA certificates that'll be um, kind of floating around as of like 2023-ish, 2025-ish, um, which is insane. But when you run the numbers on the prevalence rates of autism, you kind of reverse that back. That doesn't meet our minimum caseload requirements. I think it's like two or three times over that. So like wow. even where we're going to kind of cap out, that's not enough people to work with the one population that we've been shown to work effectively with. And if we're going to talk about working in health, sports, fitness, and these other areas that we've been shown effective, like there's not going to be enough of us. So it's almost like these, for me, I kind of reason myself, as you can see, into um, not only should we go through checklists like this or flow charts like this and, and decision hierarchies to, to whether or not we should address treatment, but it's also like we don't have time to be arguing with other people about behavioral or not behavioral <laughs> when there's so many people that need the assistance out there that has been shown to be effective. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know, for me at least that also – uh, it feels good to only work on things that are solving someone's problems at the end of the day and helping people out at the end yeah, of the day. Yeah, rather than someone else's problem. Yeah, no, yeah I, I like when I, when, I, when, I, uh, when I look back at those interactions that I alluded to at the beginning of the podcast where I was arguing with you know, the speech language uh, and teachers um, in the setting that I was working in originally, um, that got me nowhere. It got the children nowhere uh, that we were serving. Um, at the end of the day, it was like the most stressful time of my professional career Mm. and reflecting on that, like that was, like I said, only my fault. And it was just a complete waste of time, effort and resources. Mm. Maybe I, in some weird way, learned how to, uh, like it was needed. Right. And I learned from it. It's like a rite of passage. If I could, but, but if I could have sped that up as like a, uh, a quick two second conversation with a mentor or something, man, that would have been so much smoother than the six months of of hell that I put myself in. Just before you pass out of your, your postgrad, your, your, your main lecturer sits you down and says, argue with me about this. He's like, shut up. I don't know. Just, just just shut you down. Okay. So. I, I didn't really know that I was necessarily going to take this particular thing yeah. from this article, but it, I couldn't get my head out of um, A, context, and B, client safety, he calls it, but I guess he's talking about risk and harm. And he, he lists things like uh, facilitated communication, which for me is just like a Ouija board, or you've got, you know, chelation therapy, which again, causes, we know causes harm, but it's a, a thing that people somehow end up with. And of course as a behavior analyst in that environment. If somebody said, okay, go strip out all the essential chemicals from your body, you're gonna be good. Or I'm gonna help you navigate this board because I can feel how you're gonna communicate to me. You know, obviously that's crazy talk. But what have you, do you see a, 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 
you've listed some cool countries you've been to with really obvious kind of diverse um, cultural differences. Do you find a a different bar or a different perspective on what causes or what could be risky, what could be harmful? Is is that something that you've experienced? Yeah. Um, and there's no like good way to summarize it, I guess. And other than like, yes, a hundred percent, everybody's a little bit different there. Um, one thing to think about, for example, is like some of the countries I've visited, uh, and this might just be a, a, a sampling error of like the people that I was with, for example, but some of the countries were, um, a lot more heavy when it came to the religious influences and understanding, you know, what impact they may have on the perceptions of how, um, mm. behavior occurs and, and how we go about helping people out and stuff like that. Mm. Um, whereas others, it may not have as big of an impact and it's, it's those cultural differences, man, like they seem to be, um, they're hard for me to describe sometimes they're extremely relevant. Everyone's a little bit different. It seems like largely though, the, the, the same trajectory of what our professional cultures are going across on each of them is so eerily similar. Mm. Um, like when I visited Brazil and Norway, there was discussions of, you know, what should be the role of, um, certification? Should they, they were going through questions like, should we adopt the BACB standards? Um, that seems to have been created for, you know, an American English speaking kind of like type of culture. Should we be bringing that into our country? And that's where I, my understanding, uh, talking with, with different groups of people, is that that wasn't of interest to them. Not that they were opposed to the BSB, but it was like, can we take that and can we fit it within our culture? Can we create something that fits our you know, social infrastructure, that, can fits, that fits our government, right? And things like that. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I feel like what we're kind of lacking is a... a, a international behavioral community is kind of sharing what is working really well mm. and what's not working really well mm. um, across our cultures because we might be able to kind of expedite for uh, an example um, I'm sure there's something in the BACB the last what 20 years that has happened that they could they could you know summarize in a quick way and say hey at all costs probably avoid these things because <laughs> <laughs> this is what it led to right um, and we wouldn't have to relearn those sort of things across cultures now it'd be up to the cultures in those native countries to, 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 to interpret and make those decisions. Right. Um, and that's where I kind of have a hard time, I guess, summarizing these sort of things outside of saying like, it's super relevant, but I think it's, it's about information sharing and whether or not the local, uh, local folks can interpret that information and try to decide what to do with it. Um, yeah, because if you, if you, and sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say the, the, I find a lot of the, the, I think we'll leave it there. I don't think I have anything else. Okay, cool. <laughs> no problem. At yeah. So, but my, I guess my what my point is that I was trying to navigate this towards is that the behaviour analyst can't be like the body politic. Like if it, if I walk into a room in uh, Spain or the US or Brazil, much like you do, it you have to kind of really recognise where you are. But my point was is that when you come to looking at this uh, decision tree that Broadhead suggests as a way to think about things like to begin with i was thinking actually will it with will it withstand is kind of the yeah, question and yeah um man I, I i would believe so um i i mean i think these sort of so my understanding of 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 the ethics argument is like this would ideally hopefully be universal right mm. like i would hope that humans across borders cultures and stuff would would constantly assess uh, the client safety and the efficacy uh, and like livelihood at the end of the day of uh, which is what this is getting at. Um, so yeah, I would say so. That's where it's just kind of like, man, it would be nice for someone to look at this, um, you know, for example, in Brazil um, from a uh, their culture angle, right? <laughs> yeah. Of, you know, is there something else that should be added in here really quickly to not, you know, um, to, in case you need to maybe soften the way in which you go through these sort of things because the cultural differences went up. But yeah, the from an ethical standpoint, um, seems solid. Yes, yeah, so that's definitely. And then, so just moving on through the article now, he's like, there's this pieces around um, if the treatment is assessed possible with non-behavioral treatment is translated into behavior principles, which I could, like as an activity, I think is a really good thing to do. Like if you're if you're uh, supervising someone and and they come across something that wouldn't ordinarily fit within the framework of the of the task list or it's been communicated in non-behavioral terms, go ahead and change that into uh, behavioral terminology. I kind of feel like. 
this is where I started to lose him a little bit here. I, I, I get what he's saying. Can it be switched into behavior analytical terminology? But I also wonder, would you bother? Because it felt like that was swinging it back round to being about ABA again. But if you're going to be part yeah. of the team, then the team is the outcome, right? So, Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess the question here would be, is that like an overt thing that you're you're translating it to the team or if you're just translating it yourself for the sake of understanding it? Um, I don't know the intent there. I can't remember exactly where it is in the article. But um, like that was a practice that I was taught to do in grad school only because of the lab that I was in. So mm -hmm. the research lab, we would take things um, and, and practice translating them um, into behavioral terms. We'd take, you know, things like love and, and, and these right. other um, things that are very hard for anybody to exactly in any culture or, you know, discipline, put their finger on and say like what it is. We try to translate those sort of things. Um, yeah. So, and I think that was a good practice and was useful for us. Um, but I, I didn't take that, interpret that as like, I should be translating it to the people in the interdisciplinary team meeting, but it's more so like, Hey, if I thought of this treatment from a behavioral perspective, is it uh, going to be effective regardless of how it's pitched and how it's um, potentially perceived from the interdisciplinary team of working? If it's working from a behavioral standpoint, cool, whatever. Because um, I feel like if you are if you are translating it into behavioral terms and then sharing that reasoning with the team, it gets you back, like you're, you're alluding to, into this... this uh, a potential spot where it just it gets you nowhere yeah. and it's most likely just going to increase the chances of disagreement yeah. issues arising etc <laughs> so so th then i was like, then I, I kind of got over myself at this point and then like if you go forward into it he, he talks in the in the decision tree about the cat the c-a-p-t and i was like what is this and, and later in the article <laughs> yeah you kind of have this checklist of analyzing proposed treatments and point four is data collection so essentially you've got what looks like a seven um, seven-point uh, domain and category assessment and the probability of, of risk being caused or harm being caused. Um, and number four is, is, is data collection. So for me, that's that's kind of it. Like if, if you don't need to, you don't need to have people talk in terms of MOs when they're talking about what somebody wants, right? You don't necessarily need them to talk about um, reinforcement versus things they like. I mean, we understand the technical difference, but like to labor that point doesn't seem worthy. But the, one of the things that I think any industry would be super interested in and would could be our role is, is the data. So it could be the case that if you don't have operationally defined things that you're looking for, you can't then have the data for those things and then therefore you can't make decisions about the outcomes and the well-being. So maybe that's what it boils down to. Yeah, and that's uh, I like how he brings that in. I remember also reading through the thing, and I was like, "What is the CAPT?" <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, lo and behold, two pages later, there it is. The uh, what's cool is he's bringing it back into uh, a functional perspective. So from our field, right, function first, we have to understand what the effects on the environment are, what's going on here. Um, what I like about this uh, this checklist is uh, he's literally just saying like things like that, like are data being collected? Because if they're being collected. That is something that is important to us. And essentially, the regardless of, since it's not an ideal, maybe uh, behavioral interventions being rolled out under like uh, a good, uh, I'm using air quotes, perfect ABA approach, right? Sure, sure. There isn't such a thing, I'd say probably. But um, since that's not happening, are we functionally still doing the things that we would do, such as data collection, such as focusing on the outcomes? focusing on the skill acquisition, on the function-based treatment. If, and uh, those are some of the domains that I'm reading there. Um, mm. But if those seven domains, like you're saying, are being hit, then cool. It's 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 basically a behavioral intervention that's going on here, or, you know, potentially. Like, it's not in opposition, I guess, to a uh, solid ABA intervention. So um, it's, a, it's a good, useful thing to kind of, I think, get practitioners, practitioners to think about. Um, are we still hitting the... the kind of core tenets of a good ABA approach. Right, and, right? And, he, and, and then I started to think to myself, well, hang on, so as an experienced behavior analyst, I kind of feel like that decision tree to me happens in the space of the first interaction or a meeting around the things that are going to happen for, for a learner and their outcomes. Like you, you're thinking about harm, you're thinking about can I measure this, you're thinking about, well, if it's measured and we see a positive trend, then we know it's solid, like everyone's seeing the same thing and we're measuring the same stuff. 
as a tool for somebody who's just stepped out of grad school into or, or post grad school into the field, much like your story or, or someone else's. It's like, yeah. hang on a minute, I need to remember to look at this decision tree, and it would be a really useful tool. In much broader terms, then, it's like this whole article, it kind of boiled down for me. To, there's two questions, and I'll ask the first one this time. So, in reality, is this just a case of knowing your audience and their reinforcers? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I laugh because I think yes, it's and it's so simple, right? Um, I'm trying to like think of right now and like kind of contradict that argument, but it, yeah. Um, the I guess I would say yes. The the thing that I was taught is each disciplinary, um, each person at the interdisciplinary team might be approaching things from a little bit of a different philosophy, mm. what they what they believe in at the end of the day, and how they assess whether or not something is 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 worth implementing and and how to evaluate that and um i think it's our job to assess that right mm. which is really at the end of the day what the reinforcers are um how they're approaching things um and that is lacking in a lot of grad training programs i think um i know there's some that are out there to teach it but yeah yeah i agree man yeah good high five um <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i would say it also got started getting me think about contingency maps. When I was learning about um, motivating operations and um, particularly in the realms of active support, I remember a, a guy called Dr. Sandy Tugard, again, one of my lecturers, was, it really took us down this rabbit hole of how do you work within a, um, a team that has a front line of staff that are, uh, they have the hardest job and possibly the least well-paid aspects of what's going on um, and there's a sense of how you can empower people to work effectively with someone who, who they may otherwise ignore because you know when they interact and they cause that person to aggress towards them or something else bad happens and this whole contingency map idea of really understanding where someone's motivation is coming from to then understand how you might behave and then getting into this kind of um bi-directional unilateral relationship with someone by recognizing the functions of their behaviors and your own is something that can really yeah. help you to do this work yeah i mean that kind of seems to be the essence of what we're trying to go for in behavior analysis is uh being able to understand that you know context is always there it's always relevant um and we need to be able to be able to take the perspectives of and kind of break down what's going on not just with the interactions of the client we're trying to serve and the environment that they're in, but also everybody else in there, right? Because mm. they all mm. interact in that sort of bi-directional way. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that comes down to, uh, there's kind of different ways in which we, we, we train uh, up and coming behavior analysts. And sometimes it's very linearly to kind of look at just this is all that matters. All you have to do, right, is identify this ABC, pull mm. that out, mm. you're good to go. And it seems to be that that's a good first step on understanding how to break down things, but it's always a little bit more nonlinear, right? You have to take into account the other aspects. Um, well, it's, it's your, exactly that, treatment. isn't it? it? It is the first step. You're past that, you, you then, then, then your skill comes in. Okay, it kind of leads me to my last question, I think, which is not really to do with the article per se, but more to do with, I don't know, maybe this is a, a larger philosophical doubt type question, maybe, but what's up what's is there something wrong with the field that this type of article is necessary or the type of books that have been written with chapters around you know you're going to have to interact with the world guys or you know the guy <laughs> other subject themes around this idea like is there something yeah. wrong with the field or the training or what what do you think yeah yeah so <clears throat> i would say yes and no so like it's a um it's it's definitely a reflection, I think, of where our field's at and the fact that we do need to kind of rein in and, and rethink things and approach them in a different way. Um, but I don't hold anybody against that, I guess. So like, it's it's fantastic that we now have this tool out there from Broadhead and others. Um, it's, I think, yeah, I think it's just a reflection of where our culture's kind of at, I think, is um, times have changed a bit we may have worked in some sort of more uh, isolated circumstances mm. where our approach was kind of the one that was being used in that setting. Um, but times have changed. 
other disciplines have things of value to share mm. as well, right? And they're valued by the community. Um, and and that's where we're at. I don't know. Like I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a bad thing. Other than like, like it's not bad that. I'm trying to think of those. You're talking about how like some behavior analyst toes might cringe, mm. right? Um, I'm trying to take their perspective. Like maybe someone is looking at this and they're just like, oh, like why have we come to this point? Um, but for me, it's just like, hey, this is where we're at. This is where the the larger culture is at. This is what we need to be addressing. Let's focus on it. Um, just like behavior doesn't occur in a vacuum, mm. behavioral services are no longer occurring specifically in an ABA treatment center with only behavior analysts there. Um, Maybe there's some select opportunities or select centers where that's happening. Um, the, my experience of like working in a center, starting up a center, and we only when we only had behavior analysts involved, it was internally just a mess. Like <laughs> having interdisciplinary people there um, was like the first organization change that we made was we went from we're the peer ABA center to we're a behavioral center, but we have other people involved too. Um, and I don't know if that was because of our implementation skills, and I say our is like the 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 few people that are leading the 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 culture there on the organization, um, but it did not work when we only had us. In fact, everybody was kind of at each other's throats, um, and that was just because of issues that he's trying to get us to avoid um, in this article. So, mm. and I guess in the end, it, it kind of boils down to the, his central tenant. Actually, if you if you strip it all back, is around having the the services of the client, the child, the adult, whomever, at the center of all of this. And you're just thinking about, okay, if I sit somebody down and lecture them on the seven dimensions of ABA and tell them why they're not meeting those with their non-behavioral treatment, then as you pointed out earlier, that that's going to get somebody absolutely nowhere. It's not going to benefit anybody. Yeah. Whereas if you're like, just because you learn how to speak in behavior ease, you don't then, I, th- I feel like I've got enough about me to understand what someone else's viewpoint without having to make them talk a certain way or take my perspective, <laughs> yeah. you know? So, and it's also pompous to yeah, do that. Exactly. Right? <laughs> um, um, yeah, the, you know, you said it really well here and I think I'm realizing now it's just been this kind of resonating tone across the, you know, the 50 minutes or so plus that we've been talking is this is showing also that behavior analysis is person centered. Yeah. It is, it is focusing on that. Um, at the end of the day, all they're talking about in here and the point of these checklists and, the, and these pieces is that um, we need to always be putting that first. And that is how contemporary, like behavior analysis in 2015 and still, right, is focused. Is It needs to be client-focused, person-centered um, at the end of the day. And if other things are getting in the way of that, such as your training or other people's perspectives on the situation, that doesn't matter because it's all about the person here and the people that we're providing services to. That's all that matters. And making it work, I guess. Amazing. Yeah. All right, Ryan, listen, thank you. On that note, I think we'll leave it because you summed it up perfectly. Um, thanks again for all your time. Everybody, please do check out, obviously, uh, any more of our podcasts that we put up there, but definitely check out Ryan's work on the Daily BA and other work that gets posted through his YouTube channel. Um, it's some really cool stuff and really thought-provoking things that go on there.